All right, uh, Bible dictionaries. Everybody make sure you have their Bible dictionary. If you can't find one, they're somewhere, they're everywhere. Let me know when you have it. One's right there. It's right there. Oh, okay. All right. Go ahead and open up to the entry for the book of Romans. Page uh, 1099. All right, last Wednesday we uh, were dealing with kind of a, a foundation or a basis for morality and, and, and some different things with that, which was going to lead into Genesis 11. However, when everything kind of changed, we'll have to kind of get back to Genesis 11. I mean, we still got the foundation there that I wanted to get, and we can get to Genesis 11 maybe Sunday night or, or next Wednesday, whenever. But I wanted to go ahead and finish our overview to the book of Romans prior to Sunday so that we can just jump right in. And because we don't really have a lot left with the overview, I thought Wednesday night would also be the best, uh, best time to do that as well. A couple of important things uh, before we get started. Number one, um, if for everyone who can listen, Make sure in the church history section you listen to the thing that I posted this morning called Can You Answer These Questions About Church History? That is absolutely essential for Sunday school um, or you will be lost and not know what's going on. Um, so listen to that. That will give you a foundation for those who cannot on during, well, 2018 and 2019 is the 400 year uh, celebration anniversary, the 400th year uh, anniversary of the Synod of Dort. So since it's 2019, I figured if we're going to cover it, it we better do it now. I mean, we can do it any year, but doing it during the anniversary year makes uh, sense. Um, it's really kind of a two-year anniversary. And so we'll be, we'll be starting during Sunday school a lengthy study of the Synod of the, of the Canons of Dort. So, for those who have electronic devices, I would challenge you to get a copy of the Canons of Dort. You can do so rel relatively cheap. If you, have a if you have access to Kindle or the Kindle app, you can get it for 99 cents. I purchased you a physical copy. It'll be here Friday, so you'll have it by Sunday. Um, so, the Canon of Dort. Cannons of Dort. Um, you can find them like on Amazon, anywhere, and you can probably find free copies online as well. Make sure you have that. Um, and again, uh, this morning what I recorded was an introduction, um, and it's about 16, 17 minutes long, and I'll give you at least the basic information. The information that's covered there, we'll be covering it again uh, during Sunday school, but it'll, it'll get everyone kind of on the same page and ready to go. So uh, just make sure you have that ready to go uh, for Sunday school this coming Sunday, and we'll start that. Um, you'll, as we're going through Romans, you'll see why we're doing them. Well, it'll make perfect sense then why we're doing them both. Okay, so that's the goal. Sunday school will be that. Sun, uh, Sunday mornings will be uh, Romans, and then we'll see how we're going to conduct our study of Romans um, as, we, uh, as we move forward, and we'll talk a lot about that on Sunday. But... On Sunday, we started our overview to the book of Romans. We made it, we made it pr pretty far. What we're going to do is we're going to go back. We'll just read what we've already covered. Remember, we are using, again, this is for the people listening online, the Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary to do the overview. Um, there is a kind of a reason why we're doing it that way, just because there's like nine billion books have been written on the book of Romans. Everyone does their own kind, to, kind of uh, introduction or overview. A lot of times I feel the, and I talked about this on Sunday, uh, I feel like a lot of the introductions or overviews are kind of more, they're more there to hype it or to sell the study, to convince everyone, hey, you need to be doing this. And I just want to make sure everyone understands that I'm not going to sit there and say Romans is the most important uh, because I feel that that is a wrong approach because every book of the Bible is important. Every book of the Bible is an essential. Every book of the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. If we believe it's all of God's word, we can't assign more importance to one versus another because nowhere in Scripture does it say 
this book is more important, <laughs> okay? So we got to be very careful uh, when, when doing that. So I don't want to uh, approach it that way, and I just like going through a dictionary because that was something that we started as well, giving you, uh, you know, practice and looking at reference tools and how to uh, decipher a reference tool when you're seeing factual information versus opinion. So keep that in mind. Now, one of the things I do want to do before we review our overview is to go back to a key passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at over and over and over again every single time we get ready to study the book of Romans. Does everybody know what passage of Scripture that is? No. There, there was a, a Scripture that we read on Sunday a number of times prior to our looking at, it was part of my introduction, 2 Peter, yes. Go to 2 Peter. I want to make sure everyone has this passage of Scripture down, memorized. I want you to have it written in before. If you have in your Bible uh, the book of Romans, obviously you have it in your Bible, but if you have any space above it, write 2 Peter and this uh, Scripture passage down because you need to remember this over and over. This is kind of a key of what, what we did on Sunday. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Everybody ready? Wherefore, now I know we could go back and take it all apart, but wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. All right. So they're looking for something, but he wants them to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. Verse 15 an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is what? Salvation. So he's drawing them to an understanding of, of God's long-suffering, how that relates to salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Seemingly, seemingly to imply that Paul had written to them about what subject? Salvation. Salvation. This is key. Verse 16, also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Well, we're getting ready to read the book of Romans and study the book of Romans and live with the book of Romans for a number of years. Well, guess what? The book of Romans has a lot to say about salvation, does it not? All right, so that, that clearly would put that in that category. Obviously, Romans is one of the epistles of Paul. That would put it in that category. And so what can we 100% absolutely be prepared before we ever read a verse of the book of Romans is that there's going to be things in it that are what? Hard to be understood. Hard to be understood. I do not like when pastors stand behind the pulpit and go, I don't know what's so complicated about it. Well, if the Apostle Peter okay, can say, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are things in them that are hard to be understood, then who are we to act like Peter didn't know what he was talking about? You know what I'm saying? I think we've got to be really careful with that, but pastors like to always think they've got it all figured out. But that's not the issue. The issue is not that there's just things that are hard to be understood. The issue is what people did with these things that are hard to understand, and that is what? Which they that are unlearned and unstable, they rest, they wrestle, right? They take, they twist, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. We cannot... When we start dealing with the book of Romans, we're going to find things that are hard to understand and no one can pretend otherwise. If anyone claims that it's not, you're, you, you are being arrogant and you're not handling it the right way. In fact, you're making yourself vulnerable to be one of the unlearned and unstable who'll start wrestling it to your own destruction. And the, the, anytime people start arguing with me about verses in the book of Romans, I always want to know if they know that warning right there. Because I'm like, are you starting to wrestle that verse to your own destruction? We cannot do that. We have to approach the book of Romans with humility, understanding 
that we have a warning here giving us a clear indication there's going to be some things hard to understand. And I will say the book of Romans is filled with things hard to be, to be understood unless you approach it this way. What am I supposed to believe about it? Okay, now I'll just read it based off what I'm told I'm supposed to believe about it. That's not the study of the Bible. That is studying the Bible as a proof text to what you're supposed to believe. We don't study the Bible to proof text our doctrinal systems. We study the Bible to learn what the text says in order to correct our belief systems. That's a, a drastically different approach, so we're going to do that. All right, any questions about that? That's 2 Peter chapter 3. What are the verses? 14 through 16. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. Please write that down somewhere. Write it. Just read that. Oh, I want everyone to know. If you can't memorize it word for word, know what that passage says. Because I'm going to make that kind of a key approach to the book of Romans. Most people don't. I'm going to make it key. Because I think it just tells us, hey, there's some things in here that are going to be hard to, to, to be understood. And we need to be prepared for that. All right. Now, back to the Bible Dictionary. The book of Romans, let's just read quickly what we've already read. And then when we get where we get to the new section, we'll see if you know where the new section is because that will determine if you can remember where we stopped. Okay, here we go. All right, Romans, epistle to thee. The most formal and systematic of Paul's epistles. All right, I said a lot about that, but I'm not going to stop and teach it. The main theme of Romans is that righteousness comes as a free gift of God and is received by faith alone. All right, now stop right there. What, what was my emphasis with that statement? Okay, yeah, that, it, what it, that this is offering what? It's offering a, 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 a common Protestant interpretation, which is fine, but we just need to understand that's telling you their interpretation of the book. Because if we were to read a Catholic um, a dictionary about it, it would not state that, would it? No, it would not. Okay, well, why not? Because their interpretation of the book is, yeah, presuppositions, basic ideas. So, like, that, that's the problem. If you come with a presupposition, then you're going to come and go, this supports my view. No, we don't want to come to say support my view. When I get ready to open the book, what do I want to do with my view? Well, what do I always say in a very blunt way? Take it out back and put it down because I've got to come back and go, what is, this what is the book going to teach me? Does that make sense? Again, let me read that again. And again, people hear this online and go, wait a minute, you should just go ahead and support that idea. No, we're, we're going to study the text. I don't want to... Pre, I don't want to give you a presupposition to the text. I want you to study the text. It's a drastic, that's the difference between milk and meat. Milk, I'm like, this is what the book is about. Right? And then guess what happens when we study it? <laughs> that's what we see because that's what I told you is there. Uh, that, oh, that's. I'm glad, I'm glad, I hope as a church we've moved past that uh, and that we can, we can handle it differently. But let me read that again. The main theme of Romans is that righteousness comes as a free gift of God and is receivable by faith alone. All right. Now, we're not saying that that's not true. We're, we're just going to say that we're just pointing out that that is interpretation. And guess what we'll do? We'll study the text to see if it is true. All right. I know we already think it is, but we're going to do our best to just study the text. Romans stands as the head of the Pauline epistles because it is the longest of his letters, but it is also Paul's most important. And we strike that from the dictionary. I, I, don't, I think that's not true. No way to say it's most important. What will I say? Yes, but what else will I say about Romans? So at least make some kind of an argument. It's foundational for what? For a New Testament understanding of salvation, right? Romans is foundational. Foundational doesn't make it more important, right? I know some would argue it does, but no, I'm, I'm saying it's foundational in its nature and in its content. But again, hey, if I have Romans and I remove uh, other things in the, in the New Testament, 
My understanding cannot be complete. My understanding cannot be complete unless I have Genesis to Revelation. Does everybody understand that? Unless you have knowledge of the whole Bible, your knowledge is incomplete. All right, so I do not like saying it's most important, but pretty much every sermon I've listened to this week, um, that's what they always do. And a lot of that is just hyping the study, but that's, that's, that's a whole different story. Repeatedly in its history, the church has found in this epistle a catalyst for reform and new life. And then they go through history, citing Augustine, uh, citing Luther, and hey, see, these books changed these people and sparked uh, all these changes. And I could go through history and find verses that were used to change and bring other people. So, like, you know, it's like just because it changed these people, it doesn't make it more important. We are thankful that God used his, he can use any part of his word to accomplish whatever his purpose is. That's, that's probably what we need to, to go there, all right? Um, then we'll go down to structure of the epistle, all right? The epistle to the Romans consists of two halves, and the two halves are what? Doctrinal and practical. That is the traditional breakdown. I want everyone to know that is the traditional breakdown of Romans. Almost every publication says the same thing. Romans is broken down into how many parts? Two. The first part, doctrinal. The second part, practical. The dictionary does an interesting thing here though, all right? What does it do? It says the two parts go from first part, is the doctrinal section, and it goes from chapter 1 to chapter 8, and a practical section from chapter 12 through 16. And what do they do? They take three chapters and do what with them? Just set them to the side, and they say that, these are, that they're separated by three chapters on the place of Israel and the history of salvation. Now, my question is, why separate them? If they're dealing with Israel and the place of salvation, would we not classify that as doctrinal? <laughs> so we're going to keep that in the doctrinal section. So we will say that it's divided into two parts, and the two parts are doctrinal goes from chapter 1 to chapter 11, and practical goes from 12 to 16. I will say this. We do want to draw kind of a parenthesis around those three chapters because those three chapters spark so much controversy, debate, and division within the church. Entire churches have been split over those three chapters. I will argue large that you almost have two different, you have multiple streams of Christianity and the thing that caused the split in the river to give you all these uh, you know, side streams is Romans 9 through 11, okay? Like, the, the amount of debate, dispute, division, fighting, hatred um, that comes from those three chapters is kind of sad. It really is that God's people fight over God's word instead of submitting to it, being humble with it, and being informed by it. We, we, we don't like... We don't like uh, what it says. We just make it say what we want it to say. And that is never supposed to be our approach. All right? That, that should never be our approach. Okay? Now, they make... Uh, so that's the, that's the structure. I don't know why they continue on in the, this dictionary entry for paragraphs. Because they've already identified the structure. Did they not? That's all we really need to know about the structure. I will say they, 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 they go on here and they add this paragraph. Paul declares the main theme in the first chapter, that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1, 16 through 17. Now, I've got to stop right here because they've kind of stated that the main theme, like if you, if you go back to page 1098, all right, everybody see this? Okay, we well, yeah, got 1,009, the outline. All right, you've got the more detailed outline on the right. You see it? And then under the left, you have kind of a very uh, bare bones outline. And if you look at part one, part two, part three, 
What do they make the uh, theme? The righteousness of God, right? Does everybody see that? They make it the righteousness of God. According to that paragraph on page one, uh, 1,100, they say, Paul declares his main theme in the first chapter that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. But the outline seems to identify what is the main theme. The righteousness of God, All right? Now, is the righteousness of God revealed in the, uh, in the gospel? I don't know. Saying that the gospel is the power of salvation seems to be a kind of a different theme than the revelation or the, yeah, the revelation of the righteousness of God. So I, I'm kind of, that kind of confused me a little bit. Like, wait a minute, what is the theme here? What is the theme? Is the theme of the power of the gospel or is the theme on the righteousness of God? I, that, that, the dictionary seems to confuse me. Do y'all agree and see why I'm a little confused by how they approach that? Okay, um, I understand that they may try to try to draw a correlation here. So this is what I would say. The this is what I would say. The structure gives us kind of a hint. The, the doctrinal section, when we say that chapter 1 through 11 deals with uh, a doctrine, what is that doctrine? Salvation. Would we agree? Right? Whether it's referring to Israel, whether it's referring to Gentiles, it's referring to salvation. And when you deal with salvation, you're dealing with a lot of issues, right? Sin, or the righteousness of God, agreed. Sin, right? Okay, uh, condemnation, salvation, justification. So let's say this, that the main theme of Romans is salvation, and the living out of that salvation. The doctrinal section gives us the doctrinal understanding of salvation, agreed. And the practical side gives us what? The practical implications of living out our salvation. Agreed? And what's the first verse of the practical section? 12.1. Right? Look at it. What's the first, ver first word of Romans chapter 12, verse 1? I beseech you, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, therefore is going back to what? Chapters 1 through 11. And to, no, to make sure you understand, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You've just spent 11 chapters learning the doctrine of salvation. I think you're going to learn about the mercies of God, are you not? And now, as a result of that understanding of salvation and the mercies of God, what should you do to live it out? You present your bodies... A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Well, guess what? What's the motivation for the practical? The doctrinal. The doctrinal gives the motivation for the practical. And modern-day Christianity, we have it in reverse. What's the emphasis in modern-day Christianity? The practical. At the expense of the... Doctrinal. Well, now you guess what you have. If you don't have the doctrinal there and you just have the practical, then you create a, relig a new religious system called Christianity that simply becomes moralism. It's not Christianity. Okay? Moralism is just saying, here's some practical lessons so that you can be a better husband, a better, better this, better father, better this, better that. And we may lack that morality, and may we, we may wish we could all live out that morality, but the biblical model is, it's the doctrine that leads to the practical. Romans emphasizes that concept. All right, everybody have that? Now, if you follow everything he goes, uh, he does, or the dictionary does here, basically all the following paragraphs is kind of just going from section to section to section, summarizing each section. 
I'm not going to go through all of that because that, once again, what are they going to be doing as they summarize each section? They're going to be interpreting each section a little bit, right? And so we don't want to get into uh, reading an interpretation basically of each section. What we simply want to do is see the structural, the, the way it's structured and keep that in mind as we go through the, the book. Now, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. If I know chapters 1 through 11 is doctrinal, right? Okay. Then when I am reading and I'm doing hermeneutics and principles of interpretation, okay, which same thing, a little redundant there, but you get the idea. If I'm reading chapter 2, chapter 3, I understand that I am trying to read, understand, and interpret a doctrinal section. So I have to focus on what is the doctrinal truth being taught and make sure that it, I, my understanding of that doctrine is precise, carefully understood and, guess what, not being taken out of the context of the rest of the Bible. So when I'm reading and studying the doctrinal section, I have to be prepared to understand it and interpret it, for, interpret it from a doctrinal perspective. Once I get to chapter 12 and I start the practical section, what do I need to keep in mind when I'm trying to interpret the practical section? That the basis for the practical is the doctrinal. So I have to constantly understand the practical in light of the doctrinal. These are key components to a right interpretation of the book. So the structure of the book, make me make this very clear, the structure of the book is helpful in giving me kind of a, a foundation for how to interpret it. Does that make sense? So let's review one more time. The structure of the book. The book is broken down into how many parts? Two. The first part is doctrinal, all right? And the doctrinal part goes from chapter 1 to 11, all right? And what, uh, what are we going to call uh, this doctrinal section? What is the doctrine that is being emphasized in 11 chapters? Doctrine of salvation. Right, agreed? Right? Chapter 12 through the 16 is the practical section. And what what how would we define this section? The living out of salvation. So what would we say then putting it together? The theme of Romans is salvation and the living out of that salvation. Or you could just say salvation, but just make sure you understand that it's giving you the doctrinal side and the practical side. Right? That gives us the structure, and really it summarizes kind of the theme of the book. So we kind of used the dictionary, and then we just said forget the dictionary, and we did our own thing. Okay, That's, that's kind of what we do. All right, now, now we're up to a new part. And we got to finish all of this quickly. So everybody ready? Here we go. I'm going to read really fast. Author and date. Authorship and date. Is there anyone who doesn't understand the, who the author is? Let's read what they say. There can be no doubt that the Romans is an exposition of the content of the gospel by the strongest thinker in the early church, the Apostle Paul. All right. Okay. The epistle uh, bears Paul's name as the author. Everybody go to Romans 1.1. 1, 1. And it starts off with, the first word is Paul. All right. So we have, we have the, uh, the author being named uh, right there. And so we feel pretty uh, confident. I like when the books do that. That can, you know, sometimes takes away from any controversy. Throughout, it reflects Paul's deep involvement with the gospel, Paul, mostly, Paul most likely wrote the epistle during his third missionary journey as he finalized plans to visit Rome. They have Acts 19.21 down as a reference. Let's look at it really quick. Acts 19.21. Everybody there? Acts 19.21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see 
Rome. All right. So they believe this was written um, during his third missionary journey as he finalized plans to visit Rome. His three-month stay in Corinth, probably the spring of A.D. 56 or 57, would have provided the extended uninterrupted time needed to compose such a reasoned commentary on the Christian faith. All right. So authorship is Paul. Dating? Possibly where? Corinth. Okay, now let's do this. How many people have study Bibles currently present? How many, even if you don't have a study Bible, do you have an introduction, a little small introduction? Okay, you have an, introdu uh, an introduction to Romans. What do they say about authorship and date? Okay, so, all right. They got 57 to 58. The dictionary gives us 57. Okay, I just want you to see that. All right. Okay. So, they have it in Corinth, so there seems to be agreement um, there. The reason I just want you to see that is sometimes when you go from one source to another source, dates sometimes fluctuate. Everybody got that? Always be prepared for that. But what do we look for? Why do we look in multiple sources? To see how much agreement there is for a certain idea. If there's you know, 10, 15 sources all seeming to say basically the same thing, then we can feel like that we're on the right, they're on the right track. But here's the key, and, and here's another reason. If you come up with some crazy idea that 20 sources disagree with, it's probably a good chance for you to go, well, huh, why, why? and try to figure out what, what went wrong and where you're getting your information. So there seems to be pretty, pretty good agreement on, Paul wrote it, he is in Corinth, and we'll say somewhere between 56 and what? 58? Yeah, between 56 and 58. Is that fair? Okay. All right. And he's in Corinth, third missionary journey, and that's, that's how everything gets set up. All right. Any, any questions there? All right, um, they go on to say a little bit more here. Um, Paul wrote uh, most probably from Corinth where he was uh, completing the collection of money from the Macedonian and Achaean Christians for the poor saints in Jerusalem. After delivering the money, he planned to visit Rome with the Roman, Roman support to travel to Spain. The epistle therefore served as an advanced goodwill ambassador for Paul's visit to Rome and his uh, later mission to Spain. All right. Now, I will, that kind of gives us the historical setting. Let, can we at least acknowledge this? This is interesting. Remember, at the very beginning of the dictionary's entry, it says that this letter is, um, uh, what is it, formal? What was the other word? Systematic. Okay. The formal part is Paul's writing to the Romans, right? He's writing there in, in hopes of coming to visit, it has a far different tone than when he wrote the Corinthians, does it not? Or when he wrote the Galatians. He doesn't really address it in a personal way. He kind of he gets the personal stuff out of the way and then it's what? Sounds like a theology class. So it's, very, it's a very, it's almost, I, I hate to use this term because those who, who, who you know, a, a, somehow make the term Catholic, which drives me crazy, but it's almost a, catechesis, he's catechizing the church and Rome before he gets there. He wants them to, to know the basic elements of the Christian faith. He wants them to understand the basic elements. He's trying to lay down the foundation uh, of, of that. So it's almost a, an instruction manual and in what to believe about the gospel and how to live the gospel. And, but it's not done in such a personal way as he did the uh, Corinthians. All right. Any questions there? All right. Theological contribution. Theological contribution. Here we go. The great theme of Romans is God's power to save. All right. We got no problem saying the great theme of Romans is 
salvation. We don't have any problem with that. The Romans understood power. When Paul wrote the epistle to the capital of the ancient world, Roman ruled, Rome ruled supreme. The gospel, however, is nothing to be ashamed of in comparison, for it too is power, indeed the power of God to salvation for everyone. Now let me stop right there. I think that's kind of an interesting side note. That they say theological contribution. This to me kind of gives us a, a historical understanding. Um, and I, let me make, make, try to make this as clear as I can. And, I th and hopefully this will make some sense. If Paul, because very early in Romans chapter 1, after he's kind of done with the introduction, right there in verse 16, it talks about the power of the gospel, does he not? Okay. Now, if what the dictionary is claiming, the reason he stresses the power of the gospel is because the people in Rome understood power because they were in Rome and they were like the dominant world power. So he starts with a concept that the people are familiar with. Or he not only starts with a concept that they're familiar with, he takes, he takes a concept and it's in a sense to challenge the influence of the culture in which they live. Their perception of power would be influenced by their culture. And so what he wants to do is like, you have an understanding of power. Let me show you a different kind of power. And that is found in the gospel. And you shouldn't be ashamed of it. What he is doing, I cannot stress this enough, he is speaking to the culture in which he lived. He understood the cultural ramifications. He understood the cultural thinking. He understood the influence of the culture, and he speaks to it. Now, that is an assumption that that's what he's doing. That's kind of an interpretation of what he's doing. If it proves to be true, then it's fascinating because so, so much of Christianity has gone a different route, right? They, a lot of Christians and pastors, they step up behind the pulpit and they speak, quote unquote, to the culture. In many cases, as soon as they start speaking, you realize how culturally out of t tune they are. And they sound archaic, foolish, and you're kind of like, what are you trying to do? He's speaking to the, if he is speaking to the culture, but what else, he, he is clearly in tune with it. What else does it demonstrate? It demonstrates not a cheesy trying to look cool. It's speaking, he's speaking to the culture in a relevant way. He's not trying to somehow mimic the culture. Does that make sense? Like you get, you get two ways pastors work. One, they'll come up there and they'll be like preaching a sermon and be like, you know, um, uh, this, this rock music is out of control today. And, you know, bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden are destroying the young people. And all the young people are sitting there going, who? Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, who are they? And the pastor doesn't even seem to understand that, you know, that's about 30 years done. Okay? And you're like, pastor, just don't mention music because you're out of touch. You can't speak pro appropriately to the culture. On the other hand, you'll have the pastor who'll come in and then want to start, you know, trying to make the same sounds Cardi B makes. It sounds like that he's a part of the culture and he comes across as a cheesy copy of it. Both approaches are wrong. Okay? Here's the key. Speak to it like you understand it, you don't have to copy it, right? But if you're going to speak of it, know what's going on. I, 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 the Bible challenges us to be light to a culture. You can't be light if you're clueless about the culture. You need to know what's going on. Because who's going to speak to it? And it's like the Christians, like, I'm just, I, I, don't, I don't care about culture. I'm done. I don't care what's going on in the world. Okay, well, then you can't speak to it. And if you can't speak to it, don't whine and complain that the culture has no Christian influence because Christians checked out from the culture. 
And when we're cl culturally clueless, we can't speak to it. If Paul is, is aware of the Romans' perception of power, and he begins to speak to it using that idea, it's because he's culturally aware of how they think, and he wants to use something that they can understand. Didn't Jesus do the same thing when he spoke parables? He spoke parables that were relevant to whom? The people in that culture, because he understood what was going on in that culture. So it just, it just man, sometimes when Christians talk about culture, it's insane. The unknown gods? On God's eye, he went to Mars, Mars Hill, right? He could speak to the culture. Christians have some disease when it comes to cultural engagement. They either we want to we mimic it and copy it so much that we want the world to think we're cool, right? Then we just look dumb, okay? Or you got people speaking of it and you're like, what are you talking about? What? what? No, nobody thinks that way. Nobody, like, the world moved on and you got left behind, okay? I don't know why, where, where are you? Keep up, know what's, go, what, what's happening so that we can speak to it. If that's what he is doing. Now I'm stressing the if because they're making this an assumption here, but it is true Rome was the power, correct? And it is interesting he begins the gospel after he gets done with his introduction by immediately addressing what? The power of the gospel. Why? Because, well, their understanding of power would be influenced by what? Their understanding of power coming from Rome. That, that makes perfect sense to me. But I think there's a valuable lesson there. I know in the dictionary you can just read past that and don't stop. But man, Christians and culture. Um, I just I posted, I think it's in the food for thought section. It's called Christians and Culture. Uh, it's on the app. I posted it today. It's a broadcast from 2009, so it's a little outdated. But it does speak about this struggle about Christians and how they engage culture and handle culture. And I sometimes don't get... Uh, I've never understood it. I... I've never understood Christians' problems. I don't understand. I don't know what Christians do. I don't know what Christians do. But here, I think this is kind of interesting of what they're pointing out here. All right, let's go back and read that again. The great theme of Romans is God's power to save. The Romans understood power. power. When Paul wrote his epistles to the capital of the ancient world, Roman ruled supreme. The gospel, however, is nothing to be ashamed of in comparison for it. Uh, in comparison for it too. Power indeed, oh man, if I can read it this right. Read this again. The gospel, however, is nothing to be ashamed of in comparison, for it too is power. Indeed, the power of God to salvation for everyone. The gospel, uh, in the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles find access to God, not on the basis of human achievement, achievement but because of God's free grace bestowed on those who accept it in faith. Now, they're throwing in their interpretation again, obviously, but there's no question the, uh, the, the um, epistle opens after the introduction with an emphasis that this gospel, whatever this gospel is, has the power to save. He wants them to understand that. He wants this, this culture to understand power. Let me give you an example. I think this is an interesting example. In our culture today, would the subject of power have the same significance as it did Rome? No, obviously not. What, what, what are young people more concerned with today than power? No. No. Social justice. That's a big issue. So they, they, now sometimes they may, what sometimes we refer to as virtual signaling, which is they simply hop on social media to talk about some social injustice and think that by posting a tweet or posting something on Instagram solves the problems in the world, but and they feel pretty good that they did something. But they're, they're concerned, and, and so there's always this issue about even businesses, even if you watch a show like Shark Tank where they uh, are always, you know, these people come in to say, hey, this is this new business I want, and they're trying to get investors. A lot of their business things will be 
well, this product is, you know, f well, well, help the earth because, you know, we want to do justice to the earth or, or we're going we're gonna to give $1 back to this because there's this big push among a lot of young people to be more socially concerned about the social injustices in our world. So justice, injustice, is more of a cultural buzzword, you could say, than power. Right? Because that's just, I mean, it only takes five seconds to pay attention to what's happening in the world and listen to young. You, you can see that that's a, a major issue. Sometimes young people are referred to as SJWs. So, social justice warriors. Social justice warriors. And how do they fight for social justice? On their phone, tapping it, typing it out on social media. And you're kind of like, I don't really know what you've done for the, the world by doing that. But they feel like it. Now, others will be involved. Now, again, that's a, somewhat of a that's, that, that's somewhat of a, a very shallow understanding of current culture, but that just shows you a difference. So if I'm speaking to a, a, a more younger generation, justice is going to be an issue. All right, well, now you can get into what is justice? How do you define what is just? You get into those issues. They may even perceive some things. In fact, they would. Many young people today would perceive many things in the Bible as being, someone said it, unjust, not right, hateful. And they're like, that don't care it comes from the Bible. That's unjust. And you're like, okay, that's, that's understanding the culture. So if you're going to speak to that culture, you've got to be able to go there. You've got to be able to understand that. Christians who can't are literally in, you are sinning against your responsibility to be salt and light. Because it's your responsibility to be salt and light to this generation. And if you can't be because you don't care, then you're literally saying you don't care about people dying and going to hell. Because you're too, you're, you're too preoccupied to, be, to worry about what's happening in culture. You can keep up with what's happening in culture relatively easy in 2019 since you have access to all information in the palm of your hand called a phone. You can keep up with what's happening in your world. You can know what's going on. Or you can listen to young people and, and you start catching on really quick what, how the culture is going. Paul seemed to understand it. So I, I, I want to stress that. I think that's a very important point here. Um, and it, it can be easily overlooked. All right. Everybody got that? All right. Paul emphasizes that everyone stands in need of God's grace. That was apparent. In the case of the Gentiles, who instead of worshiping the Creator, worshiped the things created. But the Jews, in spite of their belief that they were superior to Gentiles, were also bankrupt. The Jews knew the revealed will of God, and they judged others by it. But they failed to see that they were condemned by the very law in which they passed judgment. Thus, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But good news is that God's love is so great and it reaches humankind even in their sin. Uh, the form it took was the death of the beloved Son of God on the cross, the righteous one. Jesus died on behalf of the unrighteous. Therefore, God pronounced persons justified not when they have attained a certain level of goodness, thus excluding justifica justification by works, but in the midst of their sin and rebellion. Such grace can be received only by grateful and trusting surrender, which is faith. Please note again, this is supposed to be about theological contribution, and they're really kind of going, offering their interpretation of the book again. So this whole dictionary entry is not the most helpful. Um, in light of the magnificent salvation, Paul urged the Romans not to return to their old human nature, which always stands under condemnation of the law. Rather, he called on them to live free from sin and death through the power of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. When you read all of that, I don't know what the actual theological contribution is supposed to be, okay? <laughs> because it doesn't really state it. It just kind of really does what? Summarize the book, right? So what would we say is the theological contribution? Okay, the theological contribution of the book of Romans is it lays the foundation for a New Testament understanding of salvation. The theological contribution is it lays the foundation for a New Testament understanding of salvation. Now, some would argue it, that's the whole Bible, but I'm just going to place it in the New Testament for now. All 
right? Because he's going to make lots of references to the Old Testament in the book, and we'll, we'll see how that works out. All right, we've got about five minutes, and we've got three paragraphs. Woohoo! If I wouldn't talk, we would, be, we would be doing great. All right, here we go. Special considerations. Roman reflects Paul's deep concern with the, uh, with the relation between Jew and Gentile, chapter 9 through 11. The Jews are indeed God's chosen people. All through uh, their history, although their history is one of rebellion against God, their, re their rejection of Christ is, is, their rejection with Christ is consistent with their history, although our remnant does remain faithful. The rejection of the Jews, ironically, has increased the truly faithful because the cutting off of the native olive branch, Israel, has allowed a wild branch, the Gentiles, to be grafted unto the tree. Chapter 11, verse 13. Paul also declared that the inclusion of the Gentiles in the household of God around, um, aroused the Jews to jealousy, moving them to claim God's promised blessings. Thus, the hardened response of the Jews to the gospel is only temporary until the Gentiles are fully included into faith. At some future time, the Jews will change, and like the remnant, all Israel will be saved. Romans 11:26. Now let me stop right there. Once again, that is an interpretation. Now obviously we studied this in great detail. We believe that this pans out to be absolutely correct, but I want you to see it is what? An interpretation. Now let me make this very clear. We studied this before, have we not? We spent, I don't know, years, okay, working on this. When we get back to chapter 9 through 11, guess what we, what we will do? Look at it again, and guess what we're going to do with our previous study? We're going to forget it. And we're going to look at it again and see if we come to the same conclusion. If we have to go back and look up 2,004, whatever, 2,000 plus references to the word Israel, we will do so and once again prove, no, Israel has a clear meaning. You can't turn it into something you want just because you, you don't have, you, you ignore every reference to the word and make it, you define it yourself, which is a violation of every hermeneutical principle. Uh, you can't do that. We, we, will, we will do everything that we have to do to reestablish what 9 through 11 teaches. They have it under special considerations, and the reason 9 through 11 is a special consideration, let me say it, is because it's so controversial. Any, any um, just that what that was written right there, do you know how many Christians will disagree with what was just written right there? Many, right? But we'll have to figure out what it actually means again. Even though we think we already have a good idea, we're always willing to do what? We've always got to be willing to let the text constantly challenge us. And then the last paragraph. Ready, ready? Paul's wrestling with this problem caused him not to doubt or condemn God, but to marvel at God's wisdom. This marvelous epistle has kindled the same response in Christians of all generations. All right. I, don't, I hate that dictionary's kind of introduction to the book, but I wanted us to use it for the purpose of seeing that just because you have a reference tool and you open it, you've got to learn how to read it and analyze it and think it through. So what probably what's the main thing we need to take from the dictionary uh, discussion of, this, of the book of Romans? What do we need to take from it? First thing we need to take from it is this. Who's the author? Paul, where did he write the book from? Corinth. When did he write it? On his third missionary journey, somewhere between 56 and 58 AD. All right. Make sure you have that down. That, we can say, is pretty factual. All right. What else do we need to know? The structure of the book. The structure of the book is the book is broken down into how many parts? Two. The first section goes from chapter 1 to... 11. I know that they don't agree with that and they want to separate 9 through 11. I'm not going to separate it because I believe it's doctrinal in nature. 1 through 11. And this doctrinal section focuses on what doctrine? Doctrine of salvation. The second part is practical. goes from 12 to 16. And what does it practically teach? How to live out our salvation in a practical way. Two parts. What, what's, what's the main lesson from that? 
doctrine precedes practice. It motivates practice. It structures the practice. We've we got to keep it uh, right. And what's the theme of the book overall? Salvation and the living out of that salvation if you just want to make sure the theme matches the structure. Does that make sense? All right. Um, the, um, the theological, what, what would be a theological consideration from the book? Lays the foundation for the doctrine of the New Testament understanding of salvation. All right. Um, what is a practical lesson we gain from this? Make sure you understand this. The importance of being able to speak to culture. I know that the dictionary kind of didn't really emphasize it, but they definitely made that point that Paul seems to be speaking to the culture and he understands the culture because he goes after their understanding of power. Paul does that in every one of his books, does he not? When he speaks to Corinth, does he understand the culture of Corinth? Obviously really well, right? Because he deals with the issues in Corinth. When he speaks to uh, the church at Galatia, does he understand what's, go the, 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 what's going on? He does. So um, you, I cannot stress that. You have a command to be salt and light. You can't be salt and light if you can't even speak to the, you're speaking and the culture is looking at you like, what are you talking about? Now, you may say you don't care, but the minute you say you don't care, that means you don't care about human beings and their eternal destination. You've got to care enough about, you have to care enough about people that you understand the culture that the people live in so that you have the opportunity to speak to them. Does that make sense? All right, it's, it's, I, I cannot stress the importance of that. All right, um, anything else from the overview there in that that we think is important? All right, here's your first section of homework. You ready? Okay. From now till Sunday, don't read anything else in the book. Don't read, the only thing I want you to focus on is Romans chapter 1. Verses 1 through 15. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. That's all I want you to read. Just read those 15 verses. If you can just do it once a day. If you have anyone in the family, just tell them to stop talking and read it to them or play the audio. Okay? Those 15 verses. Now, I'm going to make this very clear. There is massive disagreement in how to break these 15 verses down. What most do is they call verses 1 through 7 a salutation. And in verse 8, some will take 8 all the way through verse 16. They'll refer it to a lot by a lot of different names. Paul, you know, personal address. Uh, I don't know. I just think 1 through 15 is the introduction. And I think the way the introduction is written is that it builds on itself so that what happens, and I think this is why a lot of people have a hard time kind of breaking this down. It's like Paul starts the introduction, and the introduction kind of builds on itself and just immediately flows right into the first section. So some people are like, wait, 16, is that a part of Paul's personal address? Is, is verse 8 different than verse 1 through 7? Well, I think it is, and I, I think that that becomes more complicated. So we're going to approach 1 through 15 as the introduction, which immediately flows right into 16, which is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation. I think 16 begins to now, now we may, we may come back and put 16 with the introduction. We may, but we may not. All right? Okay, and then, all right, so everybody got that? You're going to read what? Verses 1 through 15. You can read 16 if you want to see if you think it's included or if you should separate it. And then here's one other thing I want you to look for. How did I put it in my notes? Hang on. I think I have them in my notes here. Look for this. Um, in Romans 1 and following, uh, there are... I guess we'll call them four identifiers that Paul uses to identify himself. Four identifiers, four ways Paul identifies himself. And see if you can find those four. Yes. That may occur even before, way before you get to 15. 
Yes. Um, yeah. You should be able to find them pretty quick. All right. Four identifiers. Make sure you find those identifiers. So what's your homework? 1 through 15. You can read 16 and determine if 16 belongs in 15 or if you believe 16 starts a new section. There's, I guarantee you no one's going to agree on that, but that just shows you how random sometimes creating an outline can be. All right. But if you say that it's different, you've got to justify it. If you say it's together, you've got to justify it. And then in Romans 1, verse 1 following to down to verse 15, Paul, there's four identifiers, four ways Paul identifies himself. We need, to we need to see what those four identifiers are because we will be studying those four identifiers. All right? Any questions? That concludes our overview. All right? Hopefully there. Anyone you know who's not here, they need to listen to the sermon because okay, I am not on Sunday morning. I am not picking up the dictionary to review. Okay, we're going to have to, I'm going to try to be very picky about that. So if people are left behind, they're going to be left behind because I'm going to try to force people to actually, uh, who are not here, to actually listen.